Hello and welcome to The Dirt, where we dig into all things related to the environment and environmental justice here in North Carolina, here in the South, the USA, sometimes even the whole world, whatever we got to do to keep you all informed, uh, we try to do that. So I want to thank you for sticking with us after a brief hiatus of content. Uh, we have a new FM radio partnership in Central North Carolina that will be getting underway shortly. And uh, we're also going to continue to bring digital-only content to the podcast so that hopefully we can keep bringing you some of the same quality voices, stories, and news about the environment and environmental justice at least a couple times a month. I think the hope is going to be uh, every single week uh, starting at least in January. So in studio with me, of course, I've got your Upper News River Keeper, Matthew Starr. Hey, looking forward to that new new year, new new content. We're ready to rock and roll. It's going to be great. We can start off today. I want to share some uh, news with everybody. It's out of the Newburn Sun Journal today. They're catching some sea monsters out in eastern North Carolina. <laughs> Have you seen this foot-long shrimp? Yeah, what is it, Asian tiger shrimp? Asian tiger shrimp. What do you know about them? Anything? No, not much other than they're huge. Well, apparently you can find these things in the Cape Fear, in the Noose, in the White Oak, uh, Pamlico Sound, all over the place in East North Carolina. They're an invasive species. But apparently not too plentiful as they're only catching a handful for every couple thousand pounds of, of shrimp native shrimp they bring in but yeah filleting a, a shrimp like a lobster would be pretty pretty gnarly <laughs> well, and in, yummy in addition to giant shrimp invading our shores uh we've got something coming up on tuesday yeah uh, i've heard a little bit about it yeah have you <laughs> the midterm elections uh are finally upon us and there are a lot of interesting races we'll get into it uh, we spoke with Grady McCauley, policy director at North Carolina Conservation Network, about uh, exactly what's going to be on the ballot for folks in North Carolina and what you should be paying attention to and what might happen beyond the election in you know legislative short sessions. And there's a lot and, on the ballot. Yeah, there is, uh, and beyond. So have a listen to that, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Okay, Grady. Election day in North Carolina is this week. It is a blue moon election, which means there is no gubernatorial race. There are no U.S. Senate races at the top of the ticket. I think usually those kind of statewide races draw people to the polls. Uh, and yet we've seen early voting exceed 2014 early voting levels. So there is clearly still a lot of interest in this particular midterm election. Um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that North Carolina's 13 congressional seats are in play, uh, which currently are held by 10 Republicans and three Democrats. Um, and as far as the General Assembly goes, Republicans currently hold a 75 to 45 majority in the House of Representatives, uh, which means that they hold a three-fifths supermajority, which is That's necessary right. to, uh, to override the governor's veto. And... Democrats need to win four seats in order to to win to break that supermajority. 
or six seats in the in the state senate to break the supermajority. All 120 House seats, all 50 Senate seats are up for election this year. Uh, there are also six constitutional amendments on the ballot. Uh, there are a number of judicial races, including I think one uh, North Carolina Supreme Court justice. Uh, I think is that the That's lay correct. of the land. That's correct. So I want to, you know, talk from an environmental angle. Uh, what extent, if any, do you see environmental issues playing into, you know, any of these races? Right. So from uh, an overall perspective, what I hear from pollsters is that the main issue for voters across the board is health care, uh, which is, as it's normally framed, is, is not directly an environmental issue. For voters who care about environmental issues, though, there are some that are higher than usual this time around. For voters in the Cape Fear River Basin, particularly in the southeastern part of the state, um, a number of folks are concerned about Gen X, the chemical that's been in the Cape Fear River um, released by the Kimworth plant south of Fayetteville. That's part of a broader question of, of what do we do as a state about emerging contaminants that are showing up not just in the Cape Fear but in other river basins as well. So that'll be on some environmental voters' mind. Um, also, we've just been through uh, Hurricane Florence and um, it's the second 500 plus year flood in three years uh, after Matthew in 2016. Um, and it's early yet for the recovery from Florence to have any impact on how voters are looking at either party. That may play more by the time we get to the 2020 election. But I think for voters who are concerned about the environment, they are aware that the intensity of the storms we're seeing is increasing as a result of climate change. And North Carolina's governor just stepped out and issued an executive order this last week, um, putting North Carolina in line with a number of other states that have said that we want to hit the Paris targets. We want to have a 40% decrease in carbon emissions by 2025. Um, that doesn't translate necessarily directly into the, any of the races. Uh, I don't, don't believe any cans have spoken about that. But um, for environmental voters, climate is just an overwhelming issue. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think uh, regardless of what results um, we see on November 6th and uh, in the days afterward, if there are close, close races and votes being counted, uh, there are currently plans for the, the currently constituted legislature to hold a, a lame duck session That's after right. the election. Uh, why are they coming back uh, and what do you expect to come of it? Right, so there, there are a couple different reasons why a state legislature might choose to come back after an election. As you say, it's the same people who've been in office for the last two years. The people who've just been elected won't take office until January. So one reason that's a good reason is, as I mentioned, we've just been through Hurricane Florence, and the legislature um, approved $300 million worth of, of assistance, uh, but there's still another $394 million that they have appropriated but not said how it should be spent. And there's a great need, and there are whole categories of expenditures that the legislature didn't provide for. So for example, our, the governor had asked for money for our state parks. State parks were, were, some of them were hard hit in the hurricane. The previous relief bill didn't provide any money for that. It provided some money for housing, but the need for, for housing is much greater. Um, and there's also a need for money to buy out properties that have been damaged multiple times and restore floodplains so that 
people are not similarly hurt in future storms, a bunch of other non-environmental needs as well. And so that's one reason for them to come back is to decide which of those to do and to go ahead and appropriate money and get that moving. Another reason that is, is not a good reason is, um, as you say, it's quite possible, it seems quite likely at this point, that although Republicans may retain control of the North Carolina House after this election, that there's a good chance that they will lose the supermajority, which means that they won't be able to routinely override Governor Cooper's vetoes, and there would have to be more negotiation between the governor and the legislature. Because of that, there are some legislators who may be interested in coming back for this November session to enact a bunch of legislation that Cooper would veto and from next year on would be able to then hold the veto and negotiate with the legislature about. And this, is, this may be leadership's last chance to pass a number of bills that they couldn't otherwise pass. Um, that's not, from our perspective, that's not a good reason to come back. If you think about it, you hope that when you're talking about the general rules of how decisions are made, that the rules apply, that you want a set of rules that apply both when you're in power, when you're out of power, when you're out of power, when you're in power, that they're the same for everybody and they're fair. And so we'll have to see what shows up uh, on the agenda when they come back. Um, I hope it's much more hurricane recovery and much less a last chance to pass things. So two things. One, and you may not know the answer to this, but from a procedural standpoint, if they come back late November, I guess, when, when exactly would we expect them to? Late come? November. Late November. And uh, they pass uh, some, some pieces of legislation that the governor then subsequently intends to veto. The governor has a certain amount of time before he has to issue a veto. And That's then right. they have some time. I guess they could come back immediately after that. But how long do, would the governor have uh, to wait it out? To, could, he, could he wait it out? You know, Does he have enough time to just kind of leave them hanging? Probably he couldn't. I, I doubt that he could wait it out. As long as the legislature is in session, the governor has 11 days from when a piece of legislation hits his desk. Uh, that goes up to 30 days if the legislature adjourns and leaves. Um, but if they, if they think there's any question about that, my guess is that they would stay for that time. One other twist on this is, as you had mentioned, there are six amendments on the ballot. And uh, for several of those, exactly what they do is going to depend um, very much on the legislation that is enacted to implement them. It's pretty rare to have amendments on the ballot without the legislation that lets you see exactly what they'll do. So we're in an unusual situation. And one of the questions is, if some of those amendments pass and then the legislature comes in and writes legislation, what are they going to put in that legislation? So that's another reason that they, that they would come in in that time. And just to be, to be clear, do any of those amendments have environmental implications? Yes, several of them do. So there are six amendments. Some of them don't have environmental implications. There's a victim's rights amendment. That doesn't. Um, there's a right to hunt and fish, which actually probably doesn't have a lot of environmental implications. It may interfere with local governability to manage hunting in their jurisdictions, but we don't think it does anything to protect wildlife. Um, there's a voter ID uh, amendment that would allow the legislature to require all residents to have a photo ID. That's one of those that exactly what it does depends a lot on the legislation that would be written to implement it if it's enacted. Um, that has an indirect effect on the environment in that if you think about it, where environmental harms go is to people who don't have political power. And so if groups of people end up disenfranchised or able to vote at lower rates, they're more likely to get environmental harms. From an environmental perspective, the more people vote, the better. 
Um, a fourth amendment is a tax cap, uh, would set a tax cap on the state income tax at 7%. That doesn't necessarily matter in good times as much, but it matters a lot when we go into a recession. And the economy is pretty strong right now, but when we go into a recession, what the state legislature has done, because as a state we can't run a debt, is raise an upper marginal tax rate on, on the highest income earners. And that's the same time that the demand for state services skyrockets, because you've got a lot of people who are out of work and need help. Um, if you put a tax cap on like this, we won't be able to raise the marginal rate when we're in a difficult time, like a recession. And if we're going to provide those kinds of services, it's going to have to come from, um, from sales taxes that are fairly regressive. Uh, it also may mean that we simply don't have that money. And the programs that will suffer include programs that protect our natural resources, protect our environmental quality. Um, so that's one reason why that, that tax cap amendment uh, could have a, a pretty bad effect on the environment at certain points. So someone might say, well, if we reach that point where we need to uh, raise those taxes and restore, uh, why can't we just amend the Constitution right. again? So, <laughs> so that's not how amending the Constitution works. That argument is, is why um, the legislature, you can look to the legislature, if we don't have a constitutional amendment, the legislature can impose, remove, oppose, remove, which is what we've always done. Um, and can make those fine-tuning changes uh, just through statute. If we have a constitutional amendment, that trumps anything the legislature can do, and getting a, a constitutional amendment on and taking it off is a time-consuming process. It's not something that can just be done on the spur of the moment. So if we enact this, we really are locking ourselves into a constrained situation when we hit the next recession. And then the last two amendments, one has to do with the way uh, judicial appointments are filled, it would significantly increase the power of legislative leaders rather than the governor to choose who is in those judicial appointments. And the sixth is a change in the board of elections and ethics, which would also, it's also a change to increase the relative power of our state legislature. Um, for those of us who believe strongly in separation of powers, balance of powers between different branches of government, it's troubling to see the legislature pick up so much power at the expense of the judiciary and the governor, we want those to be independent. Going back to what you mentioned before uh, with regard to disaster relief uh, in the wake of Florence and, and Michael, uh, you mentioned they'll be taking some things up and they've got some ideas in mind, buyouts and whatnot. What, just from your perspective, from the environmental perspective, what, what would you recommend that they do? What should they be doing? Well. One of the first pieces, and this is a piece that environmental organizations don't have a lot of expertise with, but it's a crucial one, is getting housing. Um, and in a larger sense, housing isn't just housing, it's how housing is planned into communities. Uh, and so there needs to be a lot of support for that. Um, that's one piece. Another is we should have, this ends up being tightly related to housing, we should have aggressive programs to buy out properties that get flooded again and again and um, help move those people into affordable housing outside of the floodplain and also restore the floodplain so that it can do what it's supposed to, which is hold the water when we get a lot of rain. There's a longer term piece that I think is really important. Um, and that's this is, as I mentioned, the, the second 500 year plus flood in three years. We are, whether it's because of climate change or because our estimates never were accurate, We've had a wake-up call that what we assumed was the 500-year flood is not probably actually a 500-year flood. It's probably much more common than that. 
what we thought was the 100-year flood is probably going to happen more often than, than we would have expected a 100-year flood to happen. That takes a long time to percolate through into the actual planning and zoning decisions that local governments make about where new development can happen, about where new infrastructure is built. We need to move through that process faster because if we continue to get these storms, the economic health of eastern North Carolina depends on our having built resiliently. So that's a complex issue, but that's, that is a key place for the administration and for the legislature to be focusing. I, I hope that uh, we'll have you back on the show, uh, you know, before the end of the year or, or at the beginning of 2019 to talk more about this. But uh, very quickly, what are uh, some of the kind of pressing, impending issues, environmental issues that you think uh, the new, the newly constituted legislature will be forced to tackle in uh, 2019. Right. So, well, we will see the continued discussion of resilience and what does it mean in the light, in the wake of, of Matthew and Florence, um, what does it mean for us to grow resiliently, particularly across eastern North Carolina. Statewide, uh, we need a transition to a renewable energy economy distributed generation of solar and wind, and also a lot of energy efficiency gains. We need that from a climate perspective. It can also lower costs for ratepayers. Um, it means upgrading our electric grid. And sometimes when people say upgrading the electric grid, they don't mean that. They mean upgrading it for the same traditional fossil fuels. Some people mean upgrading it for distributed renewables, um, for solar and wind and efficiency. And which direction we go is a really crucial public policy question that will be in front of this legislature, if not in 2019, over 2019 to 2020. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. That was very Thanks useful. so much for having me. Thank you, Grady, for talking to us. It was extremely useful information. Uh, we are done for now, and we will see you all shortly. Matthew, any party? Go vote. Go vote. Do it. See you.